want to ask you a question. Maybe not one that you think about all the time. I certainly do, but um, it's the question of how does ministry really work? How does ministry really work? Now, the reason some of you may not think about that often is because you may not even think of yourselves as being called into ministry. A lot of times we think of ministry as, well, there's some guys who, you know, we, we put some money in the box and they get paid to do ministry and we kind of show up and, and then we go out and do some things. Well, that's not at all the biblical picture of, of what ministry is. The, the Bible teaches that, that God calls certainly pastors and, and elders uh, into to ministry, but our ministry is to equip y'all to do the work of the ministry. For those who know Christ and follow after him, our job is to help you to understand what it means for you to be his hands and feet and mouthpiece in the world around us. Now, when you think of it that way, I'm, maybe this question means a little bit more. How, how does ministry work? Because I don't, I don't know about you, but very often when I think about the fact that I'm taking God's word to a world that is, that is broken and under a curse of sin and people who are much like myself who are oftentimes disinterested and disoriented in this world, I feel a sense of inadequacy. I feel a sense of, of insecurity. Sometimes I feel very alone and very powerless. I trust you may feel the same way. When there's someone who's maybe lost a loved one and you, you want to be able to help, you want to be able to give words on behalf of God, but you just don't know know what to say. Or maybe when you're, you want to share the gospel with a coworker or with a, a neighbor and, it, and you think about well, how do I even do that? What does that even look like? What do I say? There are feelings, as it were, of God, that God's people have of this, this inadequacy. Well, as we come to our text this morning in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is going to teach us how ministry really works. And this is important here in Luke chapter 9 because this is a real turning point in the gospel of, of Luke. Chapter 9 verse 51 um, is kind of the, what, what most people see as the major turning point where you're going to see that Jesus is going to set his face to go to Jerusalem. So everything that Jesus is doing in his ministry is ultimately about going to the cross and dying there for, uh, for his people and then rising from the dead. But everything in this point so far has been, been leading up to this point where he's going to be intentionally moving to the cross clearly. And what we're going to notice Jesus begin to do all the more is with the cross in view, he's going to begin, he's going to begin calling his disciples to move from just being spectators to now being participants in the ministry in a whole new way. He's going to, they're going to be with him, but he's going to be equipping them to do ministry. He's going to begin working through them in very clear, marked ways. He's going to be training them for and entrusting them with gospel ministry, which I think for us, we will see how much we need the lessons that he's teaching them as well. So as we work through chapter 9, verse 1, all the way through verse 17 this morning, we're going to have one big idea that we're going to be thinking on together, and we'll do it in two main points, but here's our big idea. That Jesus' disciples must rely upon his power and his presence to carry out his kingdom ministry. Jesus' disciples must rely upon his power and his presence to carry out his kingdom ministry. And and the way this is going to go in verses 1 through 9, we're going to see that Jesus' disciples minister in his power 
Jesus' disciples minister in his power. That's verses 1 through 9. And then in verses 10 through 17, we're going to see that Jesus' disciples minister with his presence. The disciples of Jesus minister with his presence. So his power, his presence is our hope as we are out doing his, his kingdom work. So let's pick it up here in this, this first point, that Jesus' disciples minister in his power. Let's start here in verse, verse 1. He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money. Do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there. And from there, depart. And whenever they do not receive you, When you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Verse 6, and they, the twelve, departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. This is the first time we see Jesus huddling up his guys and saying, okay, it's on you now, you're going out and you're about to do, you're about to do this ministry. Now, when he refers to the twelve here, these are Jesus' closest disciples, also known as the apostles. Whenever you're watching Jesus do his ministry, you'll notice there's there's really kind of two groups. You've got got the crowds. These are those who are kind of curious. They're they're watching. They're interested. They want to see miracles. They're, They're there really because something big's going on. You've got the crowd. And then you have the committed. These are the disciples. A disciple is simply a follower. These are the ones who say, he's right, I'm turning away from whatever else I'm following, and I'm going to follow him. They are the the committed, they're the the disciples. And as we read through the Gospels, we're going to see there's really three groups of these disciples. In a couple weeks, we'll see there's the 70, and then there's the 12, and then there's the 3. Okay, so... Peter, James, and John were Jesus' closest three. He had them by his side all the time. We saw him last week whenever he went in to heal um, uh, the, the Jairus' daughter. Those three went in with him, right? And then he's got the, the other 12, Andrew, Matthew, Philip, Thaddeus, Bartholomew, Thomas, James, Simon, and, of course, Judas. And these 12 are known as the 12. They're, they're the, the disciples, also known as these, the apostles. Now, just to be clear, everybody who, every, a Christian is a disciple. That's what a Christian is. It's someone who's turned from their sin, they've repented, and they've trusted in Christ, been born again, they're alive, they follow him. That's what a, a Christian is. All Christians are disciples, but not all Christians are apostles. Now, all apostles are disciples, but not all disciples are apostles, okay? So, an apostle, the word simply means um, to be sent. It's a sent one, one sent with with authority. So an apostle is one who has personally been commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? And that's who these, these 12 are. We'll come back to that in just a, just a moment. But as these, these disciples here go out, as the 12 go out, I want us to notice first here in verses 1 and 2 that, that they went out with authority. Did, did you catch that? Uh, he sent them out with authority. Power and authority. Jesus commissioned his disciples to preach authoritative messages, 
about the kingdom of God, and to perform authenticating miracles with it. They're going out and they are announcing the kingdom of God. Uh, one of the other gospels says the message is repent for the kingdom of God is, is at hand. This, this kingdom of God, is, it, it, it describes God's rule over the world. It's, it's His rule over all things. Where right now we don't see that. The world is ruled by sin. But what Jesus does when He enters into the world is He's bringing the new kingdom. The kingdom in which the world will someday be remade and will be like heaven. That's why we, we pray that. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying for that kingdom rule to come. This is what he's, he's talking about here. It's the call for people to repent from their sin, to repent from rebelling against God, repent from turning to idols, and to turning to God through faith in Jesus. This message that the apostles are taking out, that the kingdom of God is at hand, therefore repent and trust in Christ, is the same message that Jesus has been preaching. It's the same message that John the Baptist preached. John the Baptist, the great forerunner, prepped it. Jesus came and said, yes, this indeed is true. I am him. Now, as they go out and they're preaching this message, they, they prove their message had authority by performing authenticating miracles. Jesus, it says here in verses 1 and 2, he gave them power and authority over both demons and over disease. Jesus had been doing this, and now they're going to be doing that. That would have been some wild power. Can you imagine that conversation? He's like, here's what we're going to do. You guys are going to have power and authority. You're going to cast out demons, and you're going to heal diseases. And Peter and James look at each other and be like, all right, I'm ready for this. Just imagine I mean, they've been watching Jesus make demons squeal for a while now, and now they're going to get to do it. Now, it's important here to understand what, what's, what's happening and why Jesus does this, okay? He is giving them here a unique bestowment of divine power. It's given only to these apostles here. You only see this sort of bestowment of divine power happen three times in the Bible, you saw it happen in the Old Testament twice. The first was with a guy named, right, Moses, okay? Happened with Moses. Do you remember? Moses got the staff, and he was able to perform miracles. You had the ten plagues. You had the Red Sea. Turned the staff into a snake, water from a rock. God gave Moses the ability to perform miracles on his behalf to authenticate a message, the law. And then, later on, you have two guys who do it, Elijah and Elisha. You remember? Calling down fire from heaven, you've got calling a drought, calling rain to come down, raising people from the dead. They represent the prophets. So you've got the law, you've got the prophets, and then Jesus comes on the scene with his apostles, the gospel message. The fulfillment of the law and the prophets comes, and God once again does these authenticating miracles in order to show there's something unique happening right here. And every time God gives this authenticating miracle type stuff, it's to prove the message, to prove the law is indeed from him, to prove that these prophets are indeed from him, and to prove that this gospel is indeed from him. Now, 
Even after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, these apostles are still going to possess this power. When you read through the book of Acts, you see that happen. It happens through the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, God promised this. Jesus promised this to the disciples as he was getting ready to, to go up into heaven. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And the Holy Spirit came upon them and empowered them uh, to proclaim the gospel and in many cases to perform some miracles along the way as well. That was given uniquely to the apostles. Now, I just want to make a note here. So, the disciples who came after the apostles, so after the apostles died off, they still possess the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who empowers us as disciples to proclaim the gospel. The Holy Spirit gives us wisdom in ministry. He's the one who enables us to endure suffering. He gives unique gifts to his church for the service of the work of kingdom ministry. But I want to say that there are no more apostolic-type giftings of miracles today in that same way. Now, I also want to be clear, I am not saying that God has ceased doing miracles. God still does miracles. What I am saying is that it looks different than the way that he did it through the apostles in those days. Okay? So, again, I still believe that yeah, we, we pray and sometimes we see people get healed. We see miraculous things happening. God does that. It's still alive and well. It's just different than the way that he was doing it with the apostles. Exactly how it's different, there is much freedom to disagree on within Christianity and in this church. God bless you and have a great time at lunch talking about it, okay? But what we need to see here is that Jesus, his disciples go in his authority, relying upon him to supply the power that they need to minister the good news of his kingdom. They go in his authority. But you notice also there in verses 3 and 4, as they go in his authority, they also are commanded to go, to go lightly. To go lightly. Verse, verse 3 there, uh, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money. Do not have uh, two tunics. What he's, what he's telling them to do is to not, not take more than the bare necessities. He's telling you he doesn't want them to get weighed down with a bunch of stuff. That you need to lug around some wardrobe or, or pack for a week's worth of, of food. He wants them to travel lightly so that they can, be, they can have razor-sharp focus on what they're, they're doing. And it also forces them to be dependent upon God's providential provisions as they go. Trusting that God is going to care for us as we go. In the same way that Elijah, at the beginning of his ministry, do you remember the first thing God had Elijah do? He told him to take a field trip somewhere. Anybody remember where? Out to the brook. And he would sit at the brook, and he would learn there, before he's going to go off and do his ministry, he's going to learn there that God will send provision through the ravens. In the morning and the evening, he will bring them food. Well, these disciples in the same way here, are being trained to rely upon God for their every need. Now, again, I want to say that this is a unique command for the apostles on this, this mission. Okay? But I do think it's wise for us as disciples who are called into the same sort of work of taking good gospel news to the ends of the earth that we should, we should learn something here from the heart of what Jesus is getting after with his disciples. 
that we must guard ourselves from becoming too knit to the world's pleasures and provisions and comforts. Because it is easy for us to to love comfort and to begin to build our lives into the world here. We've got to be very careful, though, to make sure that we don't do anything that, that slows our role with Jesus, as it were. Anything that would hinder our ability to say, yes, Lord, I'll do whatever you say, whenever you say it. I mean, think about that right now. If Jesus called you to go and to do something, Let's say he called you to move to another land, which is very possible. To move to another land and there herald the gospel. What are the things that you'd say, yeah, but Lord, about? Those are things that I think we should always be careful to be holding with an open hand. There are great differences between needs and wants, and we should always be on guard to make sure that we are traveling lightly. Well, as they go, they're also, they went expectantly. I mean, in verses 4 and 5, he tells them what to expect as they're going out. Uh, In verse 4, we saw that they went out expecting to find people of peace who would welcome them warmly. They're going to be blessed by some with with food and hospitality and, and lodging and fellowship. Expect that, he says. When you go out, expect to see some people believe what you're saying and to receive you in. And God is going to be providing for those disciples through the people. And for those people through the disciples. Which I just think, note here, as you're ministering, expect God to be working. I don't know about you, but very often I'm, I could just think, all right, I'm going to go out and I'm just going to do it because Jesus says to, but ain't nothing going to really happen. I never seen anybody get saved. I never seen anybody's life really change. I don't think that's going out in faith. I'm not talking about going out in just blind faith that every time I preach, you know, everybody's going to get saved and all that. That's not, that's not how it goes. But do you actually believe that God's word has power and that his presence is with you and that as you herald the gospel that he's actually going to change things in your life and in other people's lives? I think Jesus is telling his apostles, be on the watch out because good things are going to happen. But, verse 5, it ain't all going to be roses. You should also expect to find people who are hostile to the message. There are going to be people who dismiss what you have to say, who mock you for what you believe, who persecute you for proclaiming this this gospel. But what does he tell them to do there? What does he tell them in verse 5? Yeah, just go Taylor Swift on them. Just, Just shake it off. Just shake the dust right off your feet and just keep on. Leave that as as a testimony against them. Don't let it, don't let it carry with you. This was actually a custom of, of the Jews. Right? After they would travel through a land where there was idolatry, they would, before coming into the camp, what they would do is they would take off their, their, their sandals and they would, dust, they, would, they would shake the dust off of their feet before entering the camp as a symbol of judgment upon the nations. That they had offered grace, they had offered peace, and they had rejected it. This is what the disciples were to do. They were to proclaim the kingdom of God is at hand. The Messiah of the world is here. God in the flesh has come. He is offering forgiveness of sins. Turn from your sin. Trust in him. Believe upon him. There is life in him. And if people say, whatever, let them know that there 
is judgment that is to come. It is the most serious sin to reject this good news of the gospel message. I just want to give you a word of encouragement that Jesus would later teach his disciples. We'll see this actually in Luke chapter 10. If you look it over at verse 16, look at what he, what he reassures them with as they go. Just remember this. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Jesus is helping his disciples to keep oriented in the midst of ministry. To remember that this is, we are representatives of the King of glory. Jesus was sent from the Father. Jesus sends the apostles who give the gospel, whom we now believe, and disciples now as we go out proclaiming the same gospel, that we are representing Jesus who represents the Father. And when people reject you, ultimately they are rejecting the Father who sent Jesus to be the Savior of sinners got to keep that in in mind well verse 6 Luke as he does oftentimes even in the the book of Acts he gives a little bit of a, a progress report here and they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere so we're not sure exactly how, time, how much time has passed here but they went through the villages probably a bunch of days here and then before he gets into the next scene with Jesus and the disciples he does this this thing where The Holy Spirit leads him to tell us about something that's happening somewhere else. Meanwhile, with Herod, so then it's going to shift scenes. So you go to a commercial, and then you come back, and now you're in this scene with with Herod. And you're going to watch something that's going on with with Herod, who was one of the Rome's rulers of the day. Look at verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod said, verse 9, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he, Herod, sought to see him, Jesus. In Matthew and Mark's Gospels, we're told that Herod, who's one of Rome's four four major rulers, had executed John the Baptist. If you want to read that later, you can look at Mark chapter 6, verses 14 down through 29. And when we we watch that, we see that, that John had basically been proclaiming the Gospel, and he had called out Herod for some sin that he was in, and Herod didn't much like it, so he locked up John trying to silence him. But he was very intrigued by John. It says that Herod actually feared John because he knew that he was a righteous man and that he was holy. His very presence, it it bothered him, but he liked him. And then he's having this party where he makes this foolish promise, uh, anything you want and I'll do it, and one of the guests requests the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And it says that, that, that Herod didn't, didn't want to put him to death, but he felt the pressure of his dinner guests. And so he did. He had John beheaded and had his head brought in on a platter. And I think when we read these couple verses here, it looks like that decision is haunting him. This this Jesus guy bothers him. He rattles him because is is he with, with the guy that I killed? 
Herod had heard about the growing greatness of Jesus, and it says that he was perplexed. Because there's all these options about who Jesus was, but, but Herod there in verse 9 seems to have an uneasiness in his soul. Could John the Baptist, who I put to death, had been speaking about this Messiah? Could this really be true? Is this the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world, just as John said? And it says here that Herod sought to seek Jesus. He sought to see him. Now, this is a bit of speculation, but I, I couldn't, I couldn't get, get past this. I, I wonder what might have happened if he had sought him. He, he, he didn't... He didn't go out in faith and find him and say, are you really who they say you are? But rather, he allowed his his wounded conscience, I think, to grow calloused here. And you know what? Later on, he does see Jesus. Does anybody remember when? When Pilate and Herod are playing ping pong with Jesus at the end, right before uh, he gets crucified, where he's dressing him up and sending him back and forth. And Herod, whenever he comes before Herod, Herod's like, God, do a trick for me. What do you got? And you can tell he's hardened and he sends him back to Pilate so that he can be crucified. He does see Jesus, but it seems that the posture of his heart has become much more calloused by that time. And the reason I mention all of that is, is, is this. If your conscience is ever sensitive to a sin that you have committed, Don't allow your heart to grow calloused. It is a great mercy of God to make you uneasy about sin. So even even as you've been here today, or maybe even this week, or even in saying that right there, if something comes to mind that you think, I've never dealt with this, or I've never told anybody about this, or I've never repented of this, I want you to know it is God's mercy that you're bothered by it right now. Now, I want to encourage you to not harden your heart and to face judgment. Well, these are these, these first nine verses here. That Jesus' disciples, they, they minister in his power. They proclaim his message. They're performing miracles. And some of them, John the Baptist, will do it at the cost of their own lives. And actually, all of those apostles later, minus John, will do it at the cost of their lives. Now this brings us to the, the second point and um, kind of a real change in tone of, of this, this section here. We're going to now watch this feeding of the 5,000 that comes on the heels of this, which I think you're going to see how clearly it's connected here in a moment. This second point, we, we called it, Jesus' disciples minister with his presence. So they minister in his power, but now they're going to minister with his, his presence. Let's pick it up here in verse 10. Meanwhile, back with the disciples. So on their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. So after a number of days, again, we don't know how long here, Jesus calls his crew back together for testimony time. And you can imagine how exciting that would have been. They'd have been like, this is what happened. This is, we healed this guy and we told him about the kingdom and he believes They would have marveled about how God had worked in and through them in ways that they had just never seen. They would have talked about the joy over belief and the the sadness over rejection. Well, verse 11, 
When the, crowns, when the crowds learned it, they followed him, meaning Jesus. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now, as we've, as we've noticed so far as we're reading through the Gospels, um, Jesus does not sneak around very well. I mean, he just, anywhere he goes, word gets out pretty quickly that Jesus is, he's there. And word had spread again that the, the miracle-working Messiah was near. He and his posse had come, so all of a sudden, a flash mob ensues. Jesus, everybody, out they go to find him. Schools let out, malls empty out, everybody goes. Now, think about this. There's been a lot of ministry going on, and you saw that Jesus had called his guys to retreat here. They must have been exhausted. The, gospels, the other Gospels tell us also this Jesus had received word just before this about John the Baptist's beheading. So he's grieving as well as the other disciples would have been. And here come all of these people. But rather than seeing them as an inconvenience and turning them away, he feels compassion on them. And he turns to them to care for them with Gospel words and healing ministry. Which would have meant that Jesus wasn't only right back at it, but who else was right back at it? The disciples are right back at it. I mean, they would have, and they would have been tired as well. I mean, they've been going and blowing for a long time now. Which I just think an important note here, gospel ministry is hard work. It is hard, unending work. The harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, and for those who are called into ministry, which is anybody who is a disciple of Christ, it requires sacrifice. This is why Jesus said the first thing you've got to know is if you want to follow me, you've got to die. You've got to die from chafing after sin, but you've got to, you've got to lose your life and follow after me. You get one life. So for those of you who are called as Christians to follow him, this is the exhortation to to work hard in gospel ministry, to labor in prayer, to labor in discipling relationships, to labor in visiting the weak and the sick, to labor in evangelism, to spend your lives for Christ. And at the same time, recognize that rest is essential. That's why Jesus had called his guys away. It was time for a little retreat, right? This is why you'll see staff elders here. We have sabbaticals. Every once in a while, we'll, we'll take some time where we step away for a month or so. That's why non-staff elders have a time after six years of service that they roll off or are required to roll off for a year. So today is the last day that Ben Hamilton will be an elder here for uh, 365 days um, until, Lord willing, he can come back on. Um, because it's, he's served for six years, it's time for him to rest. It's time for he and his family to get a break. So leave Ben alone for a little while. Um, but all of us need, need rest. We need seasons of, of labor, but we also need seasons of refreshment so that we're ready to serve again. So please, don't be lazy for Jesus, but also rest in Jesus. Some of you who just give your lives to this, need we, the elders would love to talk to you about how to think through what both laboring and resting looks like. Well, as we're about to get into the miracle, it's also important to notice there in verse 10 that this happened in Bethsaida, which is a Jewish territory. This is significant because this miracle is for a bunch of, of, of Jewish people. The Gentiles are going to get one in a little bit, the feeding of the 4,000. 
But, but this is for the Jews. Now, Bible trivia time. Does anybody know what the feeding of the 5,000 is unique for? It's the only... It's the only miracle, aside from the resurrection, that is in all four Gospels. So Jesus does a bazillion miracles. It's the only one, aside from the resurrection, that shows up in all of the four Gospels. It's because it's significant. He wants us to see here because I think it characterizes so much of what the church is going to be about from the days that Jesus ascended on. So let's watch this thing go down. Verse 12. Now the, the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, send the crowds away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he, meaning Jesus, said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. Verse 16. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied and what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces this is the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 so again it's been a long day of ministry they've had a medical clinic going on with all the healings they've had preaching seminar going on with all the messages all the follow-up discussions it's been a long day. Everybody's tired, and there's, there's no food trucks. And there's no McDavid's, and there's no Costco with a bunch of, you know, sandwich trays. They don't have any of that kind of stuff. There, there's nothing there. And you can imagine being outside all day with a big group like that. People are weary, and they are in need of food, and the disciples are in trouble. Because they don't have any food. Now, we've seen this again and again through, through the gospel. Jesus is continually putting his people in situations where they become desperate. He's putting them in positions where they can't do anything about this. We saw it with the storm. We saw it with sickness. We saw it with death. And now we see it here with, with hunger. He's making them aware, once again, of their inadequacy and their need for him. So the disciples come up to Jesus, because everybody's starting to talk to the disciples. Hey, what are we doing for dinner, right? And the disciples are like, I don't know. So they go up to Jesus, and they say to Jesus, all right, listen, people aren't going to leave unless you tell them to leave. We tell them to go away and get some food, but they're not listening. They're here for you anyway. Like, you've got to tell them to go, unless you've got some kind of trick to turn this thing around. And he does have a trick. Verse 13, you give them something to eat. Now just imagine you're one of the disciples. Well, thanks a lot, Jesus. You know, me give them something to eat? There's, there's 5,000 men here, not including the women and the children. So a conservative estimate is 8,000 or 10,000 people there. 
Now, Jesus could have given them something to eat right away, right? This thing could have just been like, it could have been over. And it could have said, and Jesus snapped his fingers and thus appeared, you know, you know subway for everyone. And they all took it home and were cheerful. On to the next scene. That, that could have happened. He could have just done it that way. But Jesus doesn't do it that way. He never does it that way. I mean, think about the entire idea of the church. God could have done it a whole lot better had he just been like, all right, I'm just going to call everybody out and we're just going to go straight to heaven. Or he could have used angels to do it. But that's not the way he do, does it. He puts a bunch of, no offense, losers, and he says, come on, here we go. Let, let's make it happen. How? You do it. How do we do it? Watch this. And he's going he's gonna to teach them. He's going to work through them. This is not what they were expecting. They're looking around, and he says, you give them something to eat. John 6 tells us that a young boy, he, he thankfully, he had a Lunchable. He had a Lunchable with him. And he's got a couple sardines and some granola bars. And they bring it, and Jesus, you know, they, they bring it up to Jesus. They're like, this isn't going to cut it, okay? This is all we've got. We took, the, we took a lunch from a kid, okay? And this is all we have here. Are we, are we supposed to go on a grocery run? You know, that's what they, they say here. They're like, uh, are we supposed to go and buy food for all these people? In Mark 6, it says 200 denarii, which is seven months' worth of wages. That wouldn't even feed everybody here. This is not working, Jesus. Verse 14, he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. This is probably to make the the distribution easier, but what do you think those conversations looked like? You've got everybody hungry and irritated. The disciples huddle up with Jesus, and he's like, have them sit down. And the disciples are like, that's the game plan? Yeah, sit down, break. All right, so they come out, and they tell everybody, Okay, everybody, we're going to get into groups of 50. Um, and they're like, why? And they're like, we don't know. <laughs> I mean, they don't know. He hasn't told them what he's going to do yet. He said, just give me what you've got and have everybody sit down. I mean, the, what's going to happen? It's supper time. How are we going to eat? We don't know. Just sit down, please. So as they're doing that, how do you think the disciples are feeling? They're calling everybody to sit down because they have something from the master for them. They don't know exactly how it's going to go yet, but they've got something from him for them. What do you think they're feeling as they're having everybody sit down? Fear? Maybe a little embarrassment? Insecurity? Very exposed here? Because what if this doesn't work? I mean, what, what, if, this, what if Jesus is like, ah, psych, just kidding. No, everybody's out there and they're mad at you. Like, what, what if Jesus doesn't do something right here? He's putting them in a situation where if he doesn't show up, they are absolutely doomed. Well, verse 15, they had them all sit down. They did it. Now, that is a huge act of faith on behalf of the disciples because he has not performed the miracle yet. I mean, it would have been a whole bunch easier if he would have just... He'd be like, all right, guys, here you go. Snap the fingers, and you've got piles of fish sticks and, you know, cheddar biscuits. And you've just got it piled up right there, and everybody sees what's happening. Not what he does. He tells them to have the people sit. And I don't think it's merely to build anticipation, but he's putting them again in a situation where now they feel the need that he's got to show up. What they lack, he has. But he's going to give it to them in such a way that it will leave no room 
for guessing as to how people got fed. There's going to be no doubt where the bread comes from. Both the disciples and the crowds are going to learn something about Jesus here. He is Jehovah Jireh. He is the God who provides. Both for the disciples, the ones ministering, and the crowds, the ones being ministered to. They're both learning the same lesson at the same time. Which is one of the things Jesus can do. He's always doing. He's always sanctifying everybody in the room at the same time in different ways. Well, verse 16 Meanwhile, back with Jesus, taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. It's an important picture. You have the crowd who is hungry, starving as it were. You have the disciples poised and ready, but they've got nothing in themselves. And then you have Jesus interceding before the Father on behalf of the people acting as the great high priest, calling down blessing upon the bread that is about to go out. He calls for the Father to make much of the little that they have, to use these feeble resources. Now, apart from Jesus here, the disciples are, are learning that apart from Him, there will be no bread and there will be no blessing. But if He blesses, they will have no lack. Their hands are empty, but his hands are always full. And what he's going to do is he's teaching them that what you've got to learn to do is to come to me and I'm going to give you what you don't have. I'm going to supply what you don't possess. He is going to be the reason for any fruitfulness that comes. And then it says he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Now again, we don't have all the details about how this went down, but they had to have gone back and forth to hand out the bread. It just, it had to have worked that way. I mean, you've got all these people here. You've got them in groups of 50. So you've, the disciples has to, have to be going out and back. Take bread from Jesus, go back, go get some more, back and forth. And that I think is very important. Because what's he teaching them in that? He's teaching them what it means to abide in him in ministry. You're going to take one handful at a time from me, the provider, and you're going to take it out to those in need, and you're going to come back and you're going to get more. He doesn't just write a blank check, this is good for all time, I'll see you when you get to heaven. That's not what he does. He's teaching his disciples what it means to abide in him. John read this earlier, John 15, 5. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Try doing the bread trick by yourself. You you can't. It's not going to happen. They can't work miracles. Only Jesus can in his power. They need him to provide miraculously for them. Now, what's, it's important again, what's what's the disciples' responsibility in all this? The disciples don't need to do anything except tell people, sit down, and then bring them bread from Jesus. That's all that they do. 
notice here, they don't need to get fancy with the bread. They don't need to dress up the bread. They don't need to provide a little bit of their own bread to go with the bread that he's given. They don't need to make the bread relevant. Jesus is not handing out creativity awards here. He's just handing out bread. You take the bread, and you take it to the hungry people. And you come back, and I'm going to give you more because there's more hungry people. He's teaching them to abide, which this, this is what takes the pressure out of ministry. The, Jesus is the one who gives bread. Jesus is the one who calls down the blessing. Our job is simply to serve what he gives. Just carry the bread. Just take the bread and give it to the hungry. Now, imagine what it's like for the disciples as they go back and forth. They take bread from Jesus, they walk away, they hand it out, and they come back. What do you think they're thinking as they come back up to get more bread? First time up, they're like, is he going to do it again? And he does it again. They're like, it's amazing. But then the next time up, what do you think they think? I bet he's going to do it again. He did it again. He's going to do it again. He's going to do it again. He's going to do it again. And, you, and Matthew, right, he's, 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 he watches Jesus fill up Andrew's hand with bread and fish and then to go on. And now it's his turn again. And that, that's the best part of the whole thing in ministry. Because what's happening while they are ministering? They're learning to feast on Jesus. As the disciples are doing the ministry, they're learning what it means to really get bread. He is the bread of life who not only feeds bellies, but he feeds souls. It's one of the things I love through the gospel, especially the gospel of John, he says, says like, and the disciples believed, and the disciples believed, and the disciples believed, and the disciples believed. It didn't mean that they lost their salvation and got it back. What it means is they're growing in their belief because they're with him. This is the best part of the whole thing. Praise God he doesn't just take us to heaven because there's this daily abiding that we get to do with him where you take bread and you throw it out there and you see God use it and you're like, how did that happen? And then you go back for more. And as he does, your love for him grows. So as they're serving bread, they're snacking on the true bread. They're learning to feast on Jesus through faith. And that gives joy and it gives assurance. And I think that is the whole point of the miracle. It's not just for Jesus to be like, let me show you how I can feed a bunch of people. He's teaching them about what bread's really about. Bread points to him. Jesus has let them get hungry on purpose so that they will see their need for him who is the true bread of life. Now again, who's the audience? It's a bunch of Jewish people. This is very significant because this is not the first time God's done this with Israel. You remember what he did with Israel? What did he feed them with in the wilderness? Manna. Listen to this from Deuteronomy 8. This is Moses speaking. He, speaking of God, God humbled you, Israel, and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know. Where's he going to get it? I don't know. Nor did your fathers know. They didn't know. That he 
might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God had worked with Israel to teach them that they needed God to provide for them daily bread. And not just food, but soul-nourishing food in His Word. And now Jesus comes as the fulfillment of that, as the true manna, as the Word incarnate. And as He's teaching the disciples to, what it means to minister and to hand out bread, it's not just about bread, it's about Him. Later on today, I encourage you, just hunger down for 15 minutes and read, that means sit down, and read John chapter 6. Read the, the other account of this and watch how Jesus interprets it for the crowd. He tells them in John chapter 6 verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for life of the world is my flesh. Jesus does the feeding of the 5,000 to prep their hearts, to prime their hearts, to make them aware of what his ministry is about. That he's come in the flesh as the bread of life to die on the cross for his flesh to be torn for his blood to be shed all of these miracles are are priming the people to be looking towards that and that's why in john 6 he's going to say you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood not calling them to become cannibals but by faith to partake of the one who is the true manna the true bread the one who is the true vine the one whose blood was shed to look to him in faith and to receive him all of this is about that And that's what we get when we're ministering. As we go out in the same power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised to uh, the disciples in Acts 1-8, the power to be witnesses. As we go out, Matthew chapter 28, he said, I am with you always to the end of the age. We have the same power and the same presence that these these men did as they went out. And we take the, 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 the bread, which is the word, and show them that it's Christ. It's Christ who we need. That's what ministry is. And day in and day out, what he does is he builds up his people to know him and love him and trust him. So the world is blessed, yes, with the gospel, but so are we. Because every day, as it were, we get a fill of him as we're ministering on his behalf. Now, I think it's important before we just conclude here to think about the right way and the wrong way to respond to this miracle. And you can, you can see it in John chapter 6. There's, there's a wrong way to, to, to respond to this miracle, which basically Jesus calls everybody out, most of the people out, on the fact that they came because they got their bellies full. Everybody liked the bread miracle because it filled up their, their bellies. And he said, you missed the point then. So the wrong way to respond to this kind of thing is just say, oh, that's pretty cool. Or that's amazing. Or I like that story. Or you know what, Jesus, he seems like a good guy with some good stories to tell us some stuff. That's a wrong way to respond to him because that's not all that he is. He is the son of God who came, who is the the bread of life, who died for sinners and rose from the dead and now extends mercy and forgiveness. And the right way to respond is to see that, yes, even though there is rejection of him in the world, to align with Peter and to say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
to recognize that these, this miracle is intended to point us to him, that we might trust in him and believe in him and depend upon him. Well, in verse 17 here, he, he concludes this miracle. It says, And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up twelve baskets of broken pieces. Twelve baskets, representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus, the true manna, the true bread of life, has what Israel has been promised in spades. He is the bread of life. He has come to give them exceedingly abundantly more than they could ask for or imagine. This is what Jesus has done for Israel. Now the gospel has gone out to all people everywhere. Jesus never runs out of supply for his people. So as we go out and we minister on his behalf, this text is intended to teach us to depend upon him. For us to rely upon his power and his presence to carry out his kingdom ministry every single day until there are no more days and we see him face to face. This is what he's called us to, Delray Baptist Church. We are weak, we are tired, we have limited resources, and we stand before a world who is hungry and in need of bread. And we are in need of bread. And our calling is simply to call the world and one another to sit down and get ready. And then to come to Jesus, ask him for bread, to depend upon him blessing the bread, and to go out And to hand it out in faith. And to trust him to bear fruit. That's what's happening right now in this sermon. As I throw it out and say, Lord, give something to somebody. Make it work. That's all I can do. And it's the same thing for you. Moms and dads with kids. When you instruct and you discipline and you encourage and you use the word and you teach them about God. All you can do is give it and say, God, please, would you make this work? It's the only thing that that we do and we go out with our coworkers and we, we seek to resist temptation there that we might be an example and then we seek to speak and explain about who this Jesus is that we follow him. It's what we do with our neighbors as, as we pray for them and we serve them and we seek to host them in our homes so that they might hear of the gospel. It's what we do with one another when we're, we're sick or we're grieving and we, we make food or we sit down with one another and, and give, give the comfort of our, our presence and our prayers and we read scripture to one another. It's what we do with one another when when we're ensnared in sin. We reach out and we go after one another. We plead with one another, trusting that he will make it work in his strength. Dory Baptist, this is the great joy that we have in ministry, together, taking bread from the bread of life to a world who needs it and ministering to one another, trusting that God will make it work.